The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author Kevin Paul Scott. Uh, We're going to be discussing his book, Eight Essential Exchanges, What You Have to Give Up to Go Up. And Kevin was named, this is impressive, one of the Power 30 Under 30 by the Apex Society, and his work has been featured on Fox Business, CNBC, and in the New York Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Kevin. Catherine, it's great to be with you today. All right, so we're going to be talking about the eight essential exchanges, what you have to give up to go up. What does that mean? What do we have to do? And more importantly, how is that relevant? relevant to all of us in our daily life, at work, at home, in our relationships? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the eight essential exchanges is is about decision-making. And I think it's important to note that for most of us, um, most of the listeners, most people that we're talking to, for you and I, Catherine, the toughest decisions that we face are not between something good and something bad, usually, typically, those are pretty easy for us. We, we're able to kind of filter through and know which is a better choice and a, or a poor choice. The challenge comes when we're choosing between two equally good things or something good and something better and really something that requires us to give up something good in pursuit of something better. And those are the decisions that people tend to struggle with, whether that's um, moms or dads or business people or People in the nonprofit or government sector, it's, it's moving from a good place to a better place. And so the book talks through eight of those choices about giving up things that are good in pursuit of things that are better. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I'm a social worker, and uh, in social psychology, uh, there are, obviously there are whole courses devoted to that. Like the, the plus-plus decisions are the most difficult Bad, bad decisions when you, you know, Sophie's Choice kinds of decisions, those are difficult. Good and bad is the easiest, as you say. So we're going to be focusing on good and good and how to differentiate which one is going to be the best for us and bring us up even further. Um, so let's start with, give us examples. Let's first, I like to start with uh, relate, cause, uh, relationship examples. Now, what would be an example of like, we have to make a choice between a good choice and a better choice? Um, how do we do it? What does that mean? And put that into like a, a, an example that we, in everyday life that we have in our relationships with like a spouse, two partners, a partner. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me give you a, a way to kind of think through it and then talk about a relationship example. I, I think about it in terms of when I was a child and I used to collect things. I collected baseball cards. Some people collected dolls or Beanie Babies or rocks. Or But when I collected baseball cards, if I wanted the card, a card that I really wanted from somebody else, I had to I had to put together some other good things and give them to them. I had to trade them a certain number of cards to get the one that I wanted. And that's kind of a way to look at things that we're facing in life. You know, one of the exchanges is exchanging fans for friends. And when we think about a world of being increasingly connected in social media and through networking, we have more expansive networks than we've had in a long time, we're, or ever, really. We're able to con- keep in touch with people and connect with people. But what's happened is that while the quantity of relationships has grown, in many ways, the quality of our relationships has decreased. And when that most affects us, is when challenging times come in our lives. I think about my business partner, a, a best friend of mine, and 
incredibly successful uh, young guy, a guy who um, was voted a couple years ago one of the 10 outstanding young people of the world. But about 17 months ago, his dad, his father, was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer and unfortunately about nine months later passed away. And here is a guy who has an expansive network. He has a lot of uh, people who admire him or think highly of him. But when a really tough time came in his life, when tragedy struck, he wasn't uh, he wasn't comforted by how many Facebook likes he got on a status he put up, or by the many people who were kind of just lobbying in phone calls or texts saying they were caring about him. It was at that time that the richest, closest relationships mattered most. So when we talk about exchanging fans for friends, it's not that a big network is bad. It's not that we shouldn't do that. It's that we have to make time to intentionally focus on cultivating those real deep relationships with family or friends, uh, those people who are closest to us and who are going to be there for us uh, when times aren't always great. All right, so you're saying that we make a choice to have whatever we do to have fans to be popular. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But there are better choices. It's better to have five really close friends, people who are not just who are not just there as fans, but are really you have intimate relationships with. So that's an example of two good choices, but upping the ante when you have a really close, intimate relationship with maybe a smaller number of people. Precisely. And again, it's not that the fans are bad. It's just that it's only bad when we allow it to stand in the way of a few rich relationships. Um, you know, when when the admiration of others stands in the way of really connecting with others. All right, so give us another example, because, I mean, I mean that's, that's, a, that's a really good example. But uh, other examples in, re, in relationships that have to do with making, like, a really good decision or a better decision, two good decisions, but one is better than the other, and the impact that would have on us in a very positive way in our life. Yeah, one of the other exchanges that I think is specific, it it really applies to so many areas of life, but I think about it relationally is key, is exchanging the immediate for the ultimate. Now, what does that mean? The immediate is kind of what I want right now. What's going to make me uh, happy, content, satisfied in the moment? The ultimate is what's best long term. Uh, Zig Ziglar, who is an author and motivational speaker, um, used to say, it was one of my favorite quotes, he said that the chief cause of failure and unhappiness, the chief, the number one reason that people fail and are unhappy is that they trade what they want most for what they want now. And so the example is somebody is working hard and they're pursuing, and what they want most is right now to, to excel in their career or they want most to, to accomplish something that's important to them uh, right now. But long-term, what they really want is uh, to spend time with their family, or they really want to make sure that their kids grow up, to, be, uh, to know that they love them or care about them. And what happens is, and it's okay to do it for a season, but when people begin to choose what they want right now, they choose uh, the immediate gains, they end up sacrificing the future of, of deeper relationships or more meaning or, or what they ultimately want. And what happens, Catherine, is they get five or ten years down the road and they look back and say, well, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have done that. And, and this is something that people inherently know, but we struggle with doing because we, we continue to want what, what's going to satisfy us immediately instead of what's going to uh, keep us content ultimately. Well, aren't we, uh, unfortunately, Kevin, aren't we, I think our society, our culture kind of promotes that immediate gratification. We want it now. Um, you know, social media, everything sort of kind of points that we, we make choices based on, on the now, and we don't necessarily, as you say, look to the future. And you're talking about family, what would be good for a family versus what I'm thinking as uh, listening to you talk would be what, like, for instance, a job offer that makes a lot of money but takes you 
traveling all the time all around the country. So you're not with your family. You're making a lot of money, but you aren't going to spend much time with your family. Is that a good example? So, That's a great example. Yeah. And I think it, it, for people, it's filtering through what their ultimate goals are. Now, somebody may be a single and and their ultimate goal may be career success. Um, but I think for a lot of people, they're seeing what, what's immediately in front of them and they fail to figure out what they want ultimately. And I've heard it put this way, and I thought this was a powerful way to say it. It says, don't sacrifice your future on the altar of the immediate. And it's, I think that's so powerful because many people, they, they know what they want down the road, but they give that up in favor of what they want um, in the moment. And, and you are right. It, it is a, we live in a culture that, that rewards the immediate, that uh, put, puts a lot of emphasis on what happens right now. And it's something that affects us relationally. Um, it's something that affects businesses. It's, uh, it, it transcends even just personal relationships. It's something that affects uh, all areas of life. All right, let's talk about businesses. How does it affect businesses? And then after we do that, I want you to tell us what the process is, how to make the good decision or what we think is going to be the good decision, the one that's going to be in the long run the best decision. Well, that's the second part of it. Okay, so in business, how does that translate into business? What are businesses doing that are an example of this kind of short-term thinking in terms of choosing good right now but not in the not you know future-oriented? Yeah, let me give you an example of a business um they're, one of the exchanges is exchanging expedience for excellence. So expedience is, let's do it quickly. And Catherine, I'm going to be honest, this one's tough for me because I, my goal is I want to get it done. How do we get it done quicker and faster and, and just get, cross it off the list as soon as possible? And, again, that's not a bad thing. The challenge comes when our pursuit of doing something quickly or efficiently stands in the way of us doing it really well, delivering something. You know, for a business, it's delivering a product that meets a customer's needs or it's, or it's, it's interacting with, with an, an employee in a way that's valuable long-term and really doing what's best. And there was a story about a company uh, in the 90s that um, was a fast food company and their competitors were growing at an incredible rate. And so... They sat in a board meeting, and they had a discussion on how do we grow quicker. Their entire executive team said, should we take on debt? Should we um, sell part of our company as a way to take on increasing capital to grow? And the founder of the company was an old man, a very quiet man. And at the end of the, uh, the meeting, he had had enough, and he pounded his fist on the table, and he said, we're missing the point. We don't need to worry about getting bigger. We need to worry about getting better. And he said this. I think this is profound. He said, when we get better, our customers will demand that we get bigger. And so they abandoned those strategies of aggressive growth. But the company in the year 2000 ended up being a billion-dollar company. They're now a $5 billion company. And their competitors that they were so worried about who had taken on Tons of debt to grow at a huge, uh, very quick rate ended up filing for bankruptcy. And it's not that always if you do things well, you're going to end up being making millions of dollars. But I think there's something to be said for making a decision, whether in business or personal life, to say we're going to do things right. And if we do things right, that will be rewarded by the people that we're serving, both our employees and our customers, and long-term we're going to be happier with ourselves for doing it that way. Kevin, do you have examples of companies that we can recognize who have done this or who are doing this? Because it seems to me just personally, and this is, this is just from the layperson, not as the business person, uh, the companies that I'm always dealing with seem to be doing the opposite. It's like the faster they can do it, the more the, get, get the work done or whatever it is, they're really not concerned with how well it's done or the quality of the work or customer service or all of those kinds of things. That's been more my experience than the other than some other reliable company that is concerned with, as you say, um, providing good services, and, and, and then the company grows. So, like, 
do you have? Can, can you name some companies? Yeah, and I'll name some that do, that kind of do it both ways. <laughs> I may get in trouble. All here, right, but, yeah. Um, you know, here I think General Motors is an example of a company who maybe didn't do it as well for a while. And I love General Motors. I think it's a great company. But under Mary Barra, who's their new CEO as of about a year ago, they're really turning the tide around. But it was a company that had tremendous amounts of recalls. And a lot of that was due to them kind of shortcutting the process, trying to trying to do things better, not being upfront about things that, that were going on and issues. And overall, it affected not just their sales, but it affected their image in, in the minds of consumers. And it's something that doesn't, you don't just rebound from in a, in a, a year or two. It takes a long time to do that. And so it, it's an example of a company who is trying to short circuit it. Let's go back just a few years to give an example of a company that I think did it really, really well. I don't know how many people remember this, but in the 1990s, Tylenol had a major issue. And there were, there were major concerns about their product, and they made a decision to pull every single one of their products off the shelf. So Tylenol, well, people, the aspirin, did they get sick or did they die? There was an incident, right? There was the, I think what, somebody, I think one person died. But it, it, they believed, some people believed they could, they could limit it to a certain batch or a certain number of products. They could only pull certain ones off the shelf. They could have tried to, to maybe get around it in other ways, but they just said, you know what, we're going to take every single product off of the shelf. It cost them unbelievable amounts of money. But in the long run, it ended up gaining a trust, an affinity with customers, and 20 plus years later, it's still a company that is very well recognized and respected because they earned the trust of customers by saying, we're not going to take the shortcut. We're going to do things the right way. And if we do it this way, it'll pay off long term. And they're in, in a day where we want things for less money, we want things uh, quicker. There's a lot of things we want. We have to remember that excellence is still in demand, and excellence will always be in demand. And when you do things well, um, and you still sell them for a reasonable price, and you, you, you have some sort of efficiency, but when you do things well, people are grateful for that, and you build long-term customer loyalty in ways that you don't when you short-circuit the process. Well, what about the concept of consumer obsolescence? You know, you buy something, it lasts for a year or two, uh, and then it breaks, and then you have to buy something new. How well do those companies do? Yeah, that's a where, <laughs> and you're saying where they get a product that's inferior and it breaks, and then you've got to get something again soon. Yeah, exactly. Or they, you know, so there's, they know the product that they're creating isn't going to last a long time, uh, but uh, that it will last a certain period of time and then it's not going to work anymore. And they're <clears throat> quite well aware of that. And then you have to buy another product. So they're not really concerned with, um, you know, long-term kinds of uh, decisions where the product is going to last for a long period of time. So where do those companies fit in? Well, and, and I think you, it's, it's understanding what you're getting. And, and sometimes as a consumer, I'm okay with getting something that I know is not as much in the quality area, but knowing that it's not dangerous or that they're going to serve me as, as a customer when things go wrong. So it, there are areas where it, it's about meeting and exceeding consumer expectations. And when companies do that, uh, they build more loyalty. And, and that same customer who that product may, may not last that long, they still want to go back to that same manufacturer because they understood what they were getting. So what's the process? How do you make these good these decisions that you're talking about, um, making really positive decisions in, that it will be positive decisions in the long run, let's say, in business for you and for your customers. What's the process? I mean, how does that work? And also maybe just I like to take a look at it in terms of just, you know, personal exchanges, how you decide on good versus better. That's a great – well, I think it, the very first thing is it involves – establishing a, a personal value system or understanding what your goals are. And I think that's something that we miss out on sometimes when we 
when we try to put everybody in the same bucket and we think that everyone should have the same values or the same goals that we have and people have different goals in life and knowing where you want to go is important. Uh, it, it's been said that direction, not intention determines destination. So direction, not intention determines destination. If, if you and I were in New York city and we wanted to head to uh, Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, and we got in a car and we started traveling north, the chances of us getting to Orlando, Florida are very slim. It, we could hope we got there. We could intend to get there. But if our direction isn't headed that way, we don't get there. And so before people can ever start making these decisions, they've got to know, number one, where they want to go, what they want to do. And then number two, they've got to they've got to start heading in those that direction. Once you do that, so I tell people a lot of times, they say, well, Kevin, is, is your book good if I'm trying to come up with a vision for my life? Probably not. It's probably, there's probably a step before this. But once you establish where you want to go, the next step is along the way, helping think through. If, if we were on the road and we were headed south, we would need to make the right decisions along the way. We'd need to know what exits to get off at, when to stop, when to start. And that's really the way that, that Eight Essential Exchanges thinks through that. And let me give you an example. One of the um, exchanges, and I think it's particularly pertinent because you are a social worker, and the exchange is exchanging making dollars for making a difference. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that everybody should go and quit their job and they should do work in nonprofit for the rest of their life or they should give up their job and just pursue charitable activities. But it's about making a decision that when you make choices in life, you're going to choose things that that have a life that extends beyond just what you're doing right now. And a lot of people think that has to be just a nonprofit or something charitable, but it really is about how you view the work that you do. You could work in a fast food establishment and be serving customers, but you don't know what that customer that's coming into your store is dealing with. You don't know what's happened with their family at home. You don't know what's happening in their job or their personal life. And when you have the opportunity to interact with somebody and positively impact their lives, you can make a difference. It's, it's not the work that you do. It's how you view what you do. And when you focus on doing things that make a difference in other people's lives, uh, th- that really is what it's all about. Yeah, well, that's a great example. Now I just have to throw in a little zinger here I want to ask you. When people say, well, you know, I know the better decision may be such and such. It, it ha- it, you know, it's a more noble decision that I could make about whether or what job I take or how I interact with somebody. But, they, they, you know, the excuse is, well, things change so quickly. I don't even know what's going to happen in the future. You know, I, you know, I have this small business. i got to do right now what's immediate, make the most money I can, and then, you know, in two years if it goes down the tubes, I'll go on to something else because there is that kind of attitude. I know people, uh, they've studied like the millennials for instance, they only stay at a job for two years, two and a half years, then they go on to next. And it seems like this, you know, that's another kind of like a mantra. Well, you know, this will last just so long and then I'll go on to next. So what's the difference anyway? I'll, I'll make decisions that have to do with, they may not say it, but immediate gratification. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, and I think it, it, it comes down to how you view what you do. It's not that that this job defines you or, or this current role defines you. It's your interactions uh, with people and, and really how you care about what you do. You know, we were just talking about a minute ago having a vision of where you want to go. And, and I think it's interesting you brought up millennials because we work a lot with that age group through our company. And this age group is, is really challenging in some ways because because the millennials seek purpose. They want to do things that are meaningful. And so they tend to try to look for other things and they aren't satisfied with where they are. It's important to understand if you know where you want to go, you're willing to do some of the things that aren't as fun along the way. I like it said this way. When you have a vision for where you want to go, the mundane activities become meaningful. 
And I always ask the millennials, the ones I say, how many of you have graduated from high school? And the groups that I'll speak to, most of them raise their hand. And then I'll ask them, how many of you took classes along the way that you didn't enjoy or that you thought were, quite frankly, stupid? And every single one of them undoubtedly will raise their hand. And I say, well, did you pass those classes? And they say, yes. Well, if you thought it was dumb or not worthwhile, why would you, why would you try to do well in those classes? And it was always because they understood the ultimate goal. They wanted to get a degree. And it was something that was on their way to getting their degree. It's the same thing for students in college. And I try to help them explain that in in a job, it's the same way. You are going to have to do activities. You're going to have to do things that you don't enjoy, that you don't even particularly find valuable. But those mundane activities are an avenue to help you accomplish your bigger goal of doing something that you believe is worthwhile and meaningful. Yeah, Kevin, that's a great example. I I like that one. And I think it's something I just want to reiterate, something you said right before that, too, because you have to have a vision of where you want to go. You really do, because you can't get there if you don't have the vision, as you said. Um, So it's really important, I guess, to be very thoughtful about these decisions. But you have to have the vision. I mean, if you don't have that vision, um, then you can't get there. I mean, it, it... so, I mean, it sounds, sim- it sounds simple, but I think that applies to personal relationships. It applies to how raising your children. What vision do you have for, you know, being a parent, for raising your children? What are the goals? Uh, or running a business? Or It applies, I guess, into any area of one's life. Oh, you're right, Catherine. I think you hit the nail on the head, too, about this being simple. The problems that we're trying to solve are simple. But just because the problems are simple doesn't mean the solutions are easy. And people, you think through the question, you say, that's pretty easy. But executing on that and actually doing that seems to be much tougher. And so a lot of times it's about uh, encouraging people to pursue the things that they already know they should be doing. All right. Well, we've covered, we have a couple minutes left. We've covered some of the eight essential exchanges, what you have to give up to go up, but not all of them. So I recommend, obviously, that that, uh, listeners go out and buy the book. So just talk to us a little bit, a website that we can go to. You can buy the book on Amazon, um, bookstores everywhere, um, and you are online. I think you're on YouTube giving lectures. So you are out there, but um, is there a specific website related to the book and to what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, the best way is probably my personal website. It's kevinpaulscott.com, uh, kevinpaulscott.com. It's got the links to the Amazon page and the Barnes & Noble page and all of that. And, you know, I'd encourage people to get the book. But beyond just this book, I would encourage uh, people to invest in their personal life. I think a lot of times we, we read books or we think about certain things um, that are fun or that make us happy. But it's so important to to take time to invest in in our journey because it doesn't just affect who we are, but it, especially in your line of work. And I think with the people we talk to, whether they're parents or they in, interact with other people on a daily basis, the things that they do have an effect on the people around them. So by them investing in themselves, it the impact is broadened and it has a chance to impact a lot of people beyond them. I think that's well said, and it's been great having you on the show, and your book has been described as inspiring and challenging, which it is. Kevin, Paul, Scott, Eight Essential Exchanges, What You Have to Give Up to Go Up. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It was great to be with you. Thank you for all that you're doing. I'm, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back with our next guest. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. 
Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Joining me this morning is my second guest, award-winning teacher and psychologist, Kelly McGonigal, Ph.D., Her new book is The Upside of Stress, Why Stress is Good for You and How to Get Good at It. Uh, Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time, and on. She's also been on NPR and MSNBC. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Kelly. Hi. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, you've got a topic, you know, you're saying stress is good for us, and I know listeners thinking, what? Stress is good for us? I'm always trying to figure out how to get rid of stress. It makes me anxious and sick and tired. And so now we have a uh, Ph.D. psychologist telling us from Stanford that stress is good for us. How can stress be good for us? I know. It's a really hard message to swallow. I, as a health psychologist, spent years telling people that stress was the enemy and we should be trying to avoid or reduce it. Um, And that's because there are studies linking chronic stress or traumatic stress to things we don't want, like illness or depression. But I've become really fascinated by research that also links higher levels of stress to everything from living longer to having more meaning in life. And I've been most fascinated by the research showing that how we think about stress can actually influence how well we cope with stress and the effect that it has on our well-being. Uh, and in fact, that the, even the message that I spent so many years telling people that stress was dangerous um, might actually be doing more harm than good. So how would that be doing more harm than good? I mean, I guess we have to, it's a given, stress is here. There's always going to be stress in one's life, that we're never going to get rid of stress. So you're saying how we view it is going to, is how it impacts on us mental health, yeah. physical health. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so. first of all, it is true that we aren't going to get rid of stress, um, whether we're talking about the kind of the good stress that brings, you know, extra meaning and challenge into our life or even the stressful circumstances we would never choose, but often as a human being we find ourselves in. Okay, and, will you tell us what's the difference, good stress, bad stress? You say the good stress is what? What would that be? Give me an example. Yeah, well, actually, right, so there are probably two different ways to think about this. The way we usually think about it is good stress is the stress we want, like maybe a promotion, and bad stress is the stuff we don't want, like having a loved one going through an illness. But actually, I think it's more helpful to think about the uh, sort of the long-term effects of stress in our life and that we can experience positive outcomes, even from the situations that we would never define as good. And, you know, research, for example, uh, looking at how prevalent post-traumatic growth is, you know, those are situations, the traumas, the losses, that we would never ask for, and we'd never call those situations good. But it turns out that we are really good as human beings at finding ways to grow and learn from even the worst situations. And so when I think about good stress, you know, what I'm most interested in is whether we can turn stress into something good and whether we can, by sort of embracing stress, make it more likely that any stressful situation will have an upside. 
All right, let's start because you talk about, you, you know, you say in your book, or this is how you define it, cultivate a mindset that helps you embrace stress. I'm going to take the worst kind of stress or one of the worst. Um, I'm going, uh, for, I'm, I'm someone who's, let's say, going through a divorce. I have three kids and I'm in a custody battle. That's very, very stressful. How do you embrace that so that it has a healthy outcome? <laughs> Well, one way is to start to trust your own feelings of stress. So stress is a physical reaction that our brain and our bodies have when something that we care about is at stake. And can you imagine going through a divorce and going through a custody battle and not having a physiological response that helps you go after what you care about? I mean, we basically would collapse under the difficulty of that situation. We would give up. And in fact, a defeat response is actually the opposite of a stress response. So it's not necessarily that the custody battle or the divorce is good, but that we actually have built into our own biology these signals and these resources that might make us angry so that we act or that might give us motivation to get through this difficult time because what we care about is our relationship with our kids. And I think that that's the sort of stress that I feel we can wholeheartedly embrace, that that we actually are built to rise to challenges. And you know, one of the worst things that we can do in those situations is become so distressed by our own stress that we decide we need to give up or we need to get drunk um, rather than allow ourselves to have those feelings um, and use them rather than try to reduce them. So, Kelly, you're saying if we try to fight the stress, if we're taking all of this energy, mental and physical energy, um, that that puts more stress on the body rather than embracing it and using it to get to the next, let's say, positive level. Uh, is, is that it? Is that what? That's definitely a part of it. So, you know, if we think that stress is toxic and we need to avoid it, we often turn to coping strategies that are really counterproductive. You know, people who think that we need to avoid stress as sort of a way to protect our own well-being are more likely to procrastinate. They're more likely to avoid conflict that might be necessary to act on. They're more likely to drink or use other substances that might numb the stress but don't actually do anything to deal with the source of the stress. Um, they're more likely to isolate themselves rather than seek out social support. And it turns out that when people accept the reality of stress and are willing to listen to their stress and can view their stress as energy that's trying to prompt them to act, they're much more effective at dealing proactively with what they can control or change and also finding meaning in situations that they can't control or change. Yeah, and as you as you give a description of that, I'm thinking of like when, and unfortunately, I've had several friends having really diagnosed with terrible, well, cancer, for instance, and that's probably a good example. You know, you get a diagnosis of cancer, and instead of falling apart, if you, I guess, embrace it, you know, this is what's happening to me, this is stressful, now where do I go, what do I do so I can become autonomous, so I can make good choices, I mean, that's, Absolutely. Is that what you're, right? Yeah. And the, the cancer isn't good, right? There's, there's no upside to the cancer. Right. Uh, there is something good in us that allows us to face that rather than completely fall apart. And, of course, even, we can fall apart a little bit and still have courage. Um, and so, for example, one of the aspects of the stress response that most people don't appreciate is that you produce a hormone called oxytocin that makes you want to connect with others. And we know that when you're going through a life-threatening illness or a divorce or any other traumatic situation, that being surrounded by people who care about you or being able to care for someone else and feel like you can make a difference in someone else's life, both of those are incredibly protective. And when you're stressed out, your body and your brain are actually trying to nudge you in that direction by making you want to talk with people. Even the feeling of loneliness we sometimes feel under stress, that's actually the biology of your stress response encouraging you to seek out support and to connect. Um, and that's one of the upsides of stress is that we can use these situations um, as an opportunity to strengthen relationships. And haven't you actually, uh, there are actually, you can now visibly see physiological changes that reflect what you're talking about? Like when you're under stress, you know, I think you've mentioned, you know, your heart beats faster, your blood vessels constrict. Um, I mean, there are a lot of physiological changes that happen when you're under stress, but you can reduce those, those negative physiological changes if you embrace the stress and, and, and do what you're talking about. 
Yeah, so there's a funny thing about the stress response system is that, you know, we all think that there's one stress response, it's fight or flight, it's, you know, heart pounding and blood vessels constricting, but your stress response system is, can be so much more fine-tuned than that. There are so many different kinds of stress responses you can have biologically, and the studies that, that you're talking about are the ones suggesting that how you think about stress can actually influence your stress response to make it healthier without reducing stress. So for example, if you're anxious about something you have to do, it turns out that viewing that anxiety as energy increases the energizing effects of stress by giving you more adrenaline, but it decreases some of the harmful sides of stress that happen when we feel completely overwhelmed. For example, reducing inflammation, which is one of the, you know, the so-called toxic um, effects of stress. And the neat thing about these studies is that it reveals that we don't have to get rid of our stress in order to have a healthier stress response. And I think sometimes we focus so much on thinking about calming down or distracting ourselves that we don't recognize there's a version of stress that actually can make us stronger and healthier and more resilient. You know, you just said something, calming down, and I've been in situations myself where something happens and I'll get a phone call or it's stressful and then I'll have either somebody who is a friend or even my boyfriend said, oh, just calm down, relax, and it makes me even more anxious because I want to get it out. I don't want to calm yeah. down and relax. That's not helpful. And so that kind of fits what you're saying. That makes me more stressed out. It's just easier to be able to get it out, to respond, and then to do what I have to do. You know, But somebody kind of patting you and don't worry about it, it's going to be okay, that's not helpful. It's not helpful. And, you know, when we feel that kind of energy with stress arising, there are a lot of things we can do with it. We can look for an action we can take that makes things better. You know, we can get started or get things done. Or we can use that energy as a signal that we need to really think about our lives. And maybe there's something that needs to be changed. We can use it to propel us to talk to someone, you know, so that we can help process what we're going through. And, it, it, you know, it's kind of a shame that people are, are so afraid of stress that when someone we care about is stressed, often our first impulse is to try to fix their feelings of stress by telling them to calm down or chill out instead of helping them use that stress to, um, you know, to make some sort of positive change or response. Uh, do we do that with our children? I think sometimes we try to do that as well and not allow them to express themselves if they're angry or or, or whatever the stress, you know, things that mm-hmm. we, and we don't want them to be angry and we don't want them to act out. We want it all to be nice. And so we try to make it nice. I think that's kind of a cultural thing, not just with children, but just in general, which is not necessarily, yep. what you're saying is not a good thing necessarily. Yeah. And, you know, there's a difference between helping people, helping kids or anyone deal with stress and what we too often do, which is try to help them suppress or hide their stress. You know, and if you tell a kid who's feeling anxious about school or is worried about a friendship and you tell them that they shouldn't be worried, you're telling them that there's something wrong with them for feeling that anxiety or there's something wrong with them for caring. And what that seems to do is it actually decreases children's sense that they're able to handle whatever it is they care about. And it can lead to exactly the opposite of what parents or teachers hope. You know, we think that we're going to, you know, help them perform better or, you know, manage themselves better. But instead, they get this basic belief that, that they're inadequate to the challenges that they face. And we carry that into adulthood. And many of us are still using anxiety or stress or other emotions as a sign that we are not adequate to our lives. And in fact, you know, the opposite is true. If you were inadequate to your life, you wouldn't have a stress response. And, and stress is actually often a sign that you're getting ready to, to do something, that you have courage, that you have resources. So, Kelly, how did you get to this point? I mean, well, obviously to writing the book, The Upside of Stress, but I mean, was this something that happened scientifically that you came to, to realize this or was something personal in your own life or some kind of aha experience? You know, it, it was both. So in my work as a health psychologist, I've done a lot of work with people who are dealing with situations they can't control, um, chronic pain, depression, anxiety, addiction, trauma, and loss, sort of like the, the world that I lived in. And I knew from direct experience and from the research that the more you try to get rid of those inner experiences, whether it's pain or grief or cravings, that they often end up getting worse and your ability to, to make a meaningful life despite those experiences becomes much reduced. 
And yet the funny thing was, is I was so convinced by my training as a health psychologist that stress truly was toxic that I couldn't somehow see that the same was true for stress. That sort of no matter how many studies you could line up saying that stress can be harmful, there's something fundamentally unhelpful about resisting stress when we know that stress is inevitable. Just like trying to, uh, you know, resist cravings or resist your own grief often makes things worse. And it took some studies directly showing that point to make me realize that I had been keeping stress outside of the circle of acceptance that seems to really support people in dealing with difficult experiences. So we're talking about denial. We sort of just, you know, that whole concept of just denying it, with stuffing it in, which is yeah, is more toxic, as you're saying. Um, give us some, like, specific, okay, let's talk about addiction. Uh, that's an area sure. I've had experience in as a social worker. So, uh, you know, you, you, and that's your, one of your areas of expertise. So how does it work when you get people, because we are an addictive society, whether it's overweight or drugs or alcohol, how does that work in terms of the upside of stress? One of the things we know is that one of the biggest triggers for any kind of addiction, whether it's alcohol or smoking or shopping or TV, you know, whatever it is, is people are trying to escape feelings of stress. And they think that they cannot stand the feeling of stress. And so they turn to the object of addiction to try to numb the stress or escape or suppress the stress. And one of the best ways to actually help people gain control over an addiction is to train them in what, what psychologists call distress tolerance, that you basically need to be able to understand that you can handle the feelings of anxiety or anger or loneliness or whatever the distress is without having to escape it. And I think that um, that sort of the message of this book and this work really supports that process of strengthening yourself to tolerate distress because it says that, that when you're feeling stressed out, you can do things like think about why you care. You can think about what choices you can make in this moment that are consistent with your values. You can use it as a reminder to reach out to others or even look for someone that you can help because you recognize if you're stressed out, other people are stressed out too. There are a lot of things you can do in moments of stress that are more helpful than turning to an addiction. And I think that, that sort of sadly, the message that stress is toxic uh, actually in many ways can lead people to stay stuck in addictive patterns. You know, one of the studies I write about in the book that really shocked me is that women who drink a lot of alcohol during pregnancy, what they say is they think it's helpful because at least it's reducing their stress and they view their own stress as more harmful to their babies than drinking alcohol. And I think a lot of us sometimes we cope with stress in a, in a similarly um, illogical way because we so fear the experience of stress. And I don't, and, and I think this is one of my, I, if you don't call it a favorite topic, but I think this is uh, definitely a topic that I want to discuss with you is the fact that, you know, you're talking about women drinking during their pregnancy. Isn't our whole society oriented to, like, taking uh, antidepressants, taking things that will calm you down, and not just the individual who's suffering from stress, which can be our, has stress, I shouldn't say suffering, uh, but uh, professionals. I mean, if you go to any physician, if you tell them that you're upset or you're feeling like you can't cope, well, here, why don't you take this and that'll help calm you down. It'll help reduce some of the stress. Very seldom do they ever talk about how you can, how you can acknowledge the stress and do something about it. At least that's not been my experience. So could, let's talk about that. Yeah, so you're exactly right. And of course, it's a little bit complicated because if you're dealing with someone who's going through a real trauma and you say, well, you should just see the upside of your situation, I mean, that is going to be offensive. And so there's a reason these conversations are hard to have, um, that because when, when we want to help other people deal better with their stress, often the last thing they want to hear is that that stress is good for them because often that message comes across sort of, uh, sort of not exactly what I'm intending to say. And I think that it's one of the reasons why, you know, if you want to change someone's mind about stress, the best way to do it is you really only have your own mindset to work with. Uh, and what I talk about in the book, in one of the chapters, um, particularly for people who are in helping professions, is this idea of vicarious resilience, that mindsets are contagious. And when you view other people as adequate to the challenges in their lives, when you're able to see their strengths, 
even when they themselves are suffering, that somehow that mindset becomes a little bit contagious um, and it can help bring other people strength and hope. And sometimes just telling people, oh, you should just, you know, try to see the, the upside of your situation doesn't do as much good as you yourself choosing to see them as someone who's going to be able to get through this and who has the strength to to turn this situation eventually into resilience or into something positive. But as a professional, though, how do you view other professionals? Let's take physicians, the healthcare mm-hmm. system, because that's your area of expertise. They don't seem to see it that way. It's take a pill. I keep going back to that. You know, we'll, we'll give you a pill. We'll get you over this difficult time. If if someone dies, you know, and you have a you know a, a close relative or friend or whatever. Do you want to just take some, you know, um, you know, some kind of medication just to get you over the hump kind of thing? And it's the professional. It's usually the physician who's telling you that. Um, yeah, well, really so think to, about yeah. the medical profession, right? You have people who are in deep contact with suffering every day, whose own actions often appear to contribute to that suffering because you can't save everyone's life. And so these are people who are used to being trained to try to shut down or turn off the part of them that cares about that suffering, that would respond with empathic distress, you know, that would really be the influenced by the suffering and the pain that they're in contact with on a daily basis. And in the book, I write about this really interesting intervention that's designed to help medical professionals actually see the meaning in their own stress and suffering so that they're better able to support patients in dealing with their own stress and pain and loss. And I think that that's, you know, part of the the whole science of mindsets is you can't just tell people to do something or think a certain way. You have to transform yourself first. And that, I think, is one of the most promising interventions in changing healthcare. is that medical professionals, rather than trying to stuff down their own experience of stress and pain, are learning how to connect it to meaning um, and to stay present with it so that they can actually assist their patients and their families in doing the same. That I, okay, so what is, has been the response? Because I think that sounds like, you know, that's obviously a great way to go uh, from the community. I mean, you're, you're in the, the associated with the medical community and the healthcare community. What do you get a lot? What kind of feedback do you get? You know, it's interesting. I, I get really mixed feedback, uh, particularly when people haven't really, you know, ha- haven't read the book and haven't had a real conversation. I think a lot of people think that this idea is dangerous, that if you tell people that there's an upside to stress, that you tell people that the stress response can be a resource, not just a toxic state, uh, that somehow we're going to be encouraging people to create lives of greater and greater stress. And, you know, I think that what's so funny about that concern is that people are already experiencing great deals of stress and they're not necessarily choosing it for themselves. That's the reality of being a parent, of having a job, of having a physical body that's going to experience illness and problems. This stress is already there. Um, And what I'm trying to help people who have this sort of negative reaction to this message understand is that it actually isn't helpful to tell people that the reality of their lives is so toxic that there's nothing they can do, that sort of their own lives are are poison to their well-being. And I think that one of the reasons it's so important to be able to remember the upside of stress is that it actually gives us the courage to persevere because we can't always control the stress in our lives. I think it makes so much sense. Um, I guess I'm so much in agreement with you. We only have a minute left, so I do want to make sure that other people have the opportunity, obviously, to read your book online, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. And you have a TED Talk as well, right? Yes, it's called How to Make Stress Your Friend, which is not the relationship most of us think of having with stress. (laughs) Okay, well, How to Make Stress Your Friend, the upside of stress, why stress is good for you, and how to get good at it. Website that we can go to also to keep abreast of what you're doing and uh, more information about the book if we want it. Where do we go to? Uh, KellyMcGonigal.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Very, very interesting concept. I like it. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Um, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. 
Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.